0: Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles. This is a podcast I started as a place to share life principles I learned from my journey healing through postpartum depression and chronic illness. Last week's episode 13 introduced the idea of the power of naming. The idea that being able to name the thing that vexes you is the first and powerful step in being able to solve the problem. We looked to examples from the story of Rumpelstiltskin and how the strange little man had the power to steal the queen's baby until she was able to correctly state his name. Neil Gaiman's book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, recounts the story of the Hemstock women who were unable to rid their town of the pesky, trouble-reaking creature until they could successfully name the bothersome pest. Today, I am deepening the discussion about the power of names, the power of words and labels, their effect on our perceptions, and consequently on our actions. Welcome to episode 14, the power of naming part two, what Rumpelstiltskin teaches about curing depression. Hi friends, I have a big idea for you today, a super duper mind switch. Today I am putting out there the idea, my theory, that one reason depression and resulting suicides is such a rampant problem in society is because we are calling it by the wrong name. And I propose that we will never successfully eradicate the issues of this disease until we identify and address it by its accurate name. Do you remember when the musician we all knew as Prince changed his name to a symbol, but the symbol couldn't be spoken. So everybody had to say the artist formerly known as Prince. And you know how in the Harry Potter stories, no one wanted to speak the bad guy's name. So they all had to refer to him as he who must not be named. I feel like that today. I believe that depression is the wrong name for the disease it's used to describe, but I don't have anything else to call it. So do I say the disease currently labeled as depression or the illness formerly known as depression or the condition that shall hereto henceforth and forever be known as neurosynaptic rupture? It gets a little complicated. What I can say is that it's painful for me to open the news and see a report of another death from suicide, another beautiful person gone from us. Recently in my area, we lost a father of five children, a successful business owner in his young 40s who was very involved in our community. We've lost college students and teenagers. And especially close to my heart is when I hear the news of the death of a mother who was in the throes of what we currently call postpartum depression. Suicide is always a tragedy. When a mother dies, there is always at least one infant left behind, and often other children. When a father dies, we lose a provider, a protector, a leader, a coach, a pal. When a teen or a college student dies, we lose all the possibility, all the potential of their life and personality. I think about the good men and women and youth in my neighborhood. I love them. I value them. I've been watching men in my community help a family remodel their house. My own boys have coaches and teachers and scout leaders who are dedicated, caring, and do so much good, though they probably feel that they are not enough. Every diligent mother is a priceless commodity because in the process of nurturing her own children, she inevitably nurtures other children as well. My own kids have been blessed to be mothered by more than one woman, by more than me alone. And every college student is journeying on a bridge to merge what they've gained from their parents with what they can discover for themselves. And this is how progress is made. We need all these good people in our world. And their death from suicide is a tragic, heartbreaking loss. And I believe we can do something about it. This is a make you think kind of episode. It's an important conversation. I recently listened to Jane Clayson Johnson speak at Utah Valley University campus about her book, Silent Souls Weeping, which is a collection of stories about depression or the illness we currently call depression. In her presentation, she said that talking about suicide is not going to increase incidence of suicide. Depression and suicide gain power in silence. We need to speak up. We need to speak out. We need to name the issue and we're going to do this all by using words. In order to understand why naming a disease depression is such a big deal, we need to review the power that words have on our brains. How much information does our human brain process each day? Try 400 billion bits of data. Not per day, but per second. And I thought my email inbox was full. It makes sense why it's hard to concentrate, to think straight, to make decisions, why it's so easy to get distracted. Our brains are busy opening, reading, and deciding what to do with all those messages. And how does our brain manage to handle this influx of data? Through naming. Every second of every day, the brain hosts a party and every guest or message that arrives is wearing a hello, my name is badge, which determines where the brain will send them. Our brain has preset filters or programs which help it know how to categorize all these guests quickly. These programs or filters have been created by our childhood, our upbringing, our culture, media, religion, advertising, our native language education, experience, trauma, etc. The simplification of this sorting is directed by a process called framing. To understand the process of framing, imagine that at the front door of your party, your brain employs a bouncer. And it is this bouncer who decides how to sort all the guests who want in. The bouncer looks them each over, reads their name tags, examine how they're dressed and who they're with, then decides which ones to throw out, which ones to lock in the back room, and which ones will get the royal treatment. This bouncer is your brain's framer. He represents your frame of mind. Framing is a concept in which we view the world depending on how it is presented to us. The Learning Mind reports that frames include our values, morals, preferences, and prejudices, and this all helps us to make decisions and assumptions. The framing effect is a cognitive bias where people decide actions based on if the options are presented with positive or negative semantics, also known as the meaning of words. As a writer, I have a fascination with the power of words. Words create images, perceptions, words evoke emotion, and therefore words influence actions. German psychologist Wolfgang Kohler said that words convey symbolic ideas beyond their meaning. It's fascinating to look up statistics according to names. Did you know that how people feel about their own name can influence how long they live, whether or not they will try for that dream job or run for office or become a lawyer? Studies show correlation to people's names and their health. So what we name things, what we call things, influences how we react to them. For example, what is your emotional reaction when I say undocumented worker versus when I use the label illegal immigrant or even stronger, illegal alien? Brain research shows that subtle linguistic differences frames our approaches to different problems. So maybe our bouncer wouldn't think that a rose by any other name smells as sweet. What if that rose's name tag said fungus? Would the brain bouncer let it into the party? Think of how we respond to emergencies, to natural disasters based on the words used by the news reporters. What if you heard a news report that Iowa is suffering from broken houses? If you hear Iowa is battling a chronic problem of recurring broken homes and a record for the highest rate of homelessness in the country. What is your emotional response? Is your knee-jerk reaction, get your act together, Iowa, solve your family crisis? How about if you heard this on the news? Multiple reports about a pungent smell coming from the residents of Paradise, California. Are you repulsed? Do you recoil? Maybe those residents should take a shower and practice some hygiene. One last imaginary news report. Restaurant floors in New Orleans are drenched in sewage water. Ugh, you pretty much know that you're going to stay away, keep a big distance from those restaurant owners in New Orleans. Gross! Who let sewage water soak their restaurant floor? In each of these example news stories, I reported an effect, a result. Now listen and observe your emotional response as I report the cause Over the past three months, Iowa has been struck by dozens of tornadoes. This last wind was so powerful that any remaining homes not damaged by the first tornadoes have been leveled. Every resident of Iowa is homeless. Okay, what's your response now? Much more empathy? Those poor Iowans whose homes were destroyed by tornadoes. Maybe you even feel a desire to go help rebuild or donate money or invite an Iowan to come live in your home. Second news report. Cities of California have been ravaged by fire. With the large amount of cattle ranches, many animals have been trapped and consumed by raging flames. Residents are reporting a pungent smell of singed fur. Wow, oh that changes the whole picture. Californians aren't stinky because of bad hygiene. Again, the way the story is reported influences our reaction, whether or not we feel empathy and have a desire to help. Finally, The city of New Orleans has been hit by massive hurricanes. With all water lines damaged, sewage is now mixed with treated water. The citizens of New Orleans have no drinking water. Again, here's a huge change of perspective. Instead of focusing on how we're not going to go into these disgusting restaurants with sewage on their floor, we're thinking instead of the thirsty people who are surrounded by water but have nothing to drink. And the difference between these two sets of news stories is that in the first set, I reported the outcomes, the results of the disaster, where in the second example, I explained the cause, and that made all the difference. So let's keep playing with this little experiment. Let me describe some people according to effects or results of their issues. Chris has bad breath. Taylor, Taylors weak. Alex is shaky. Kim, Kim is dizzy. And Sean, wow, those outbursts of anger. Sean is angry. What do you think? What was your emotional reaction to these people? Are you anxious to get to know Chris, Taylor, Alex, Kim, or Sean? Are you feeling empathy or judgment? How likely would you be to offer help if they asked? How did your brain filter, your brain bouncer, interact with Chris and his bad breath, Taylor's weakness? Alex's shakiness and Kim's dizziness. How about Sean's anger? Did angry Sean get into the party? Now, what if I tell you that bad breath Chris has throat cancer? Taylor, who I described as weak, has muscular dystrophy. Alex with the shakes is diabetic. Dizzy Kim is experiencing a severe case of vertigo. And Sean's anger started after a head injury from a car accident. What is your emotional response Now, is your brain bouncer acting with more empathy and compassion? Maybe bouncer Bob in your brain is actually escorting Kim to a bedroom where she can rest until her vertigo passes. Maybe he's offering Chris a soothing, nutritious smoothie since Chris hasn't been able to eat solid food since the last radiation treatment. Now, what is your emotional response when I say, Jamie, Jamie is depressed. And does your response change very much when I say, Jamie has depression. The term diabetes is a long way from shakiness. Muscular dystrophy is miles away from weakness. But depression? Depression is right next to depressed. There's virtually no difference at all. I don't know who is in charge of naming illnesses, but somewhere, somehow in society, we have made a mistake. We have inaccurately labeled an illness after one of its many possible symptoms. We've gotten it backwards. We are calling a disease by an effect instead of naming its cause. And while the illness itself is a problem, this inaccurate nomenclature is actually fueling the fire because instead of alleviating this disease, currently known as depression, we are actually seeing a steady rise. The inaccurate name depression is propagating the problem. My thesis for today's broadcast is threefold. First, that using the word depression to name a disease is a misnomer. It is the wrong designation. Second, that calling depression by the wrong name is strengthening its grip on us. This misidentification is compounding its hold rather than empowering us to alleviate it. Essentially, We are calling Rumpelstiltskin Frank and then crying as he stills our baby. And third, that our solution to all of this is simply to change the name, to identify this disease for its cause, not for one of its many symptoms. I propose that as soon as we stop calling this melody depression and we correctly identify its real name, we will see a huge decrease of negative effects. We will be better able to diagnose, treat, and cure this misnamed illness. Okay, let's cover part one of the thesis why depression is the wrong name for the disease. Two reasons. First, the term depression doesn't go far enough, it stops at a symptom and doesn't continue to address the root of the issue. Think about it depression is an emotion, not a disease. Have you ever felt depressed? Yes, we all have. It's a human emotion. Does that mean we all have a disease? No. Depression can be an emotional symptom of an illness, but it is not the illness. It's like saying Jodi has low energy and stopping there. When in fact, Jodi has anemia. Low energy is a symptom, not the cause. Low iron levels in the blood is the cause. The name depression puts all the focus on a symptom rather than focusing on treating the cause. Now, I have had doctors explain to me possible physical causes for depression, such as an underproduction of brain neurotransmitters or malfunction in the neurosynapses. So, there is a physical cause. There is a malfunction in the body, in the brain specifically. Yet, we continue to call the disease after an emotion rather than for the physical cause. What's even more inaccurate about labeling this disease as depression is that depression is only one of many possible symptoms of this disease. Other symptoms can be insomnia, significant weight loss or weight gain, loss of appetite, muscle pain, moving slowly, difficulty concentrating. In fact, it is possible for a person to have this disease currently known as depression without experiencing the symptom of depression. I did not apply treatment for the disease currently known as postpartum depression because I didn't feel depressed. I knew I didn't feel well. I was exhausted, but I couldn't sleep. I ached everywhere and my body felt heavy as if I were made of concrete. I lost a lot of weight and not in a good way. My head was always foggy, but because I didn't feel depressed, I didn't treat myself for this disease currently called depression. And because I didn't treat the physical issues of this disease, my health got worse, not better. Another reason the term depression is a misnomer is that it's too broad. The feeling of depression can be a symptom for multiple diseases, head injuries, cancer, MS. And also we can experience depression without having a physical disease. We can experience depression while grieving a loved one's death or after losing a job or because it's winter and there's not enough sun. Depression is a common and variegated emotion. I can feel depressed in the morning and be happy by afternoon. So to call a real brain illness after such a kaleidoscopic emotion seriously interferes with treating the disease. The second part of my thesis is that using the wrong name is making the problem worse. The name itself deters people from seeking treatment and taking steps to heal the disease. We've talked about the power of words on the brain, how words influence framing and how negative or positive semantics influence how we perceive and how we choose to respond. The term depression does not separate the person from the illness. Why? Because we identify with our emotions our emotional state is linked with our personality. We describe people by their emotions. Oh, he's a jolly person, a happy person, an energetic person. Oh, he's a sluggish person. Oh, she's always down. In fact, we even have a nickname for this personality type, a Debbie Downer. So here we have a physical disease called depression that is getting crossed over and mixed up with a personality type. So when the brain bouncer sees a party guest wearing a name tag depression, he's going to group that individual in the dark room with other negative people, with other people who happen to be in a bad mood that day. The brain filter categorizes a person with depression and groups them with other people it perceives as having character flaws, moodiness, personal weaknesses. An equivalent example would be for a person who's had a stroke to arrive at the party wearing a name tag that says mumbler. The brain bouncer then groups that person in the room with other people who you don't enjoy talking to because you can't understand. But if that guest were to arrive at the party wearing a name tag that said recovering from a stroke, the brain bouncer is going to escort the individual to a room with empathetic people who understand that he's had a stroke and it's affecting his ability to speak they're going to take the time to listen to his stories and be more patient with his slowness of speech. In most cases, we are pretty good at separating the effects of an illness from the character of the person, but not so with depression. And the social impact is that many people who have the illness currently known as depression don't say anything, don't seek treatment, Because the name depression insinuates personal weakness and they would rather be sick in secret than to be perceived as weak in public. I had an experience just two weeks ago that really brought me face to face with this reality. My 15 year old came to me and said that he was having a hard time focusing in school. I noticed he had been sluggish and pretty moody and didn't have his normal motivation to do his homework or go to activities. His usually fun, upbeat sense of humor had gotten terse and he was firing barbs at family members that were hurtful. Describing these symptoms, you might make the mistake that I almost did of writing him off as a typical teenage boy, but he was also having chronic headaches. So I took him to the doctor and the doctor asks lots of questions about where the headache is and if it's always in the same place. And he asks more questions about mood changes. And my son said that sometimes he just feels like he wells up with tears and he feels like crying, but he doesn't really have a a reason to cry. And that sometimes he just feels really angry, but he doesn't really have a reason that he's angry. He tells the doctor about his difficulty concentrating. And honestly, I was bracing myself to hear the doctor diagnose him with teenage depression. And my mind started going down the road. What will I do? Will I tell his teachers? Will we tell grandparents and extended family? Would I mention it to anyone from church that he's struggling with depression? And the doctor asks if he's hit his head. And my son says, well, a couple of months ago, I fell while snowboarding, but I was wearing a helmet and it was in really soft, fresh powder and I didn't hit very hard. The doctor gave us the diagnosis, post-concussive syndrome. And he explained that concussions aren't really caused by the force of the impact. A very soft impact can result in a concussion. And that not everyone who gets a concussion will experience symptoms of post-concussive syndrome. But for my son, he was. He was experiencing the symptoms of a concussion. His brain had swelled up and the swelling was interfering with his concentration, his memory, his cognitive function, as well as his emotions. The doctor said that it was common for people with PCS to have outbursts of anger or crying spells out of the blue. Here's what's interesting. When Dr. C said the word post-concussive syndrome, I felt relief. Why? Because there was an explanation. There was a cause. My son wasn't just moody and unmotivated. He wasn't a delinquent student zoning out during class. There was a reason for his grogginess, his lackluster, his decreased ability to work through math problems. There was a reason behind his bouts of anger. He had hit his head. His brain was injured, swollen, bruised, and malfunctioning. Did I feel any shame or embarrassment telling my family that he had a concussion? Not in the least. Did I blame him for falling down in the snow? No. Accidents happen. Our bodies are susceptible to breaking. But what if, instead of post-concussion syndrome, the doctor had said, Your son has mood swings. How would we even deal with that? What if the doctor had said, You have fuzziness. What if the doctor had said, You are struggling with distraction. What if when I took my son to the doctor saying, He gets angry for no reason at all. The doctor had said, Your son has anger. Doctors don't diagnose patients with anger, fuzziness, or distraction. Why do they diagnose patients with depression. I kind of think that calling this disease depression is akin to saying that someone with stomach cancer is a picky eater. The third and final part of my thesis is the solution. I propose simply that we change the name. Just like the hemstocks in Neil Gaiman story had to find Ursula Moncton's real name before they could banish the creature, We have to call this disease by its real name. I propose we begin by discontinuing the term mental illness and instead calling it brain disease or brain illness. The brain is an organ, just like the kidneys, lungs, or heart. When the lungs are sick, you can't breathe well. When the brain is sick, you can't think right. Thoughts and emotions are processed in the brain through electrical chemical reactions. If the electric wires go out, the thoughts go dark, just like when power lines go down. If the chemical recipes aren't right, the emotions come out bad, just like using salt instead of sugar when baking cookies. It's not emotion, it's science. So let's call it by what it is. Name it for the cause not after one of the numerous possible symptoms. I don't have authority or the training to come up with the best name, but I propose that it be scientific, that it sound official, and actually be related to the root cause of the ailment rather than a resulting emotional symptom. How about something like neurosynaptic spatial inhibition? Or neurochemical dismaliation, Or how about prolapsed synapse? The term diabetes is shortened from diabetes mellitus, which comes from the Greek word diabetes, which means to siphon or to pass through, and the Latin word mellitus, meaning honeyed or sweet. In diabetes, excess sugar is siphoned through or passed through the blood. The term diabetes comes from a Greek word, the meaning of which is actually associated to what is physically going on in the body. Assigning an appropriately descriptive name to an illness helps our brain to focus on treating the physical cause of the illness rather than concentrating on the idea that in the United States, we currently have over hundred million people who can't digest their food properly. Accurate naming gives us power. With my son, the name post-concussive syndrome empowered us. Now we know that we need to let his brain rest to cut back on learning new things. He's going to hold off on memorizing that Bach Allegro on the violin, and he's not playing spring soccer. We make it a point that he gets extra sleep, that he drinks more water, and that he has a big bottle of headache medication everywhere he goes. He told all of his teachers, and they were understanding and willing to accommodate if he needs extra time on an assignment, or they know the next few months isn't going to be the best time to select him as someone to come work the math problem on the board. And here's the hard truth. Going to his teachers and saying that he had a concussion was far easier than going to his teachers and saying that he had depression. Isn't it interesting that a name makes all the difference? When we have a name that accurately describes the cause, we are empowered to take action. We know that with time, he will get better. And the other day when he was rehearsing for his violin recital, when his fingers stumbled over phrases that he had mastered months ago? I didn't chastise him for sloppiness or lack of practice. What if I had gotten huffy and made him play that page over and over again and berated him for sloppy technique or criticized him for not getting it right? It wouldn't have done any good because his brain is swollen and his memory and motor skills are impacted. That name, those words, Post-concussive syndrome has empowered me with empathy and patience. Instead of getting frustrated and worked up, we laughed and decided to cut out the most difficult passages of his music and to not stress about a perfect performance. We actually added a fun dramatic pause to add a bit of humor to what could have been a really stressful situation. And because we know his brain needs rest and that he had a performance last night, We canceled his violin lesson for today. Can you see how knowing the correct name for his ailment has empowered us with realistic expectations and permission to apply rest, lower stress, and other treatment strategies that will aid in healing. But this same care and attention isn't happening with the disease currently known as depression. The word depression arrives at the party carrying a lot of luggage. The stigma of this baggage influences the bouncer to put depression off in a room by itself where it won't spread its dark mood to the other party guests like a viral contagion. Renaming this disease currently known as depression will empower us to perceive and understand in a different, more enlightened way. It will help us move out of the space of impatience and judgment, the snap out of it, and this needs to be fixed now. It will help us move into the place of giving people time, room, and space, and support to heal. In the world of postpartum health, I am noticing some attempts to change the name away from postpartum depression. People are recognizing that there are other symptoms, and so we're hearing more terms like postpartum anxiety or postpartum psychosis. But while these are changes, for me, they aren't effective changes because again, the names are possible emotional symptoms, not a description of the cause. And postpartum psychosis, that name doesn't help because it sounds like pure insanity. It doesn't accurately describe at all what's physically going on inside a new mother's brain, which includes decreased production of chemical transmitters and increased spatial prolapse of neurons. I'm hearing an increase in the use of the term perinatal mood disorders. That's way worse. It connotes a bad mood. And we all learn from the time we're young that we're responsible for our moods. We need to shape up our attitude, find our happy face, get it together, put on a smile, think happy thoughts. These are cures for bad moods, but I would never tell my son with a concussion, having a burst of anger to find his happy face because I know his anger is a result of swelling on the brain, not because he has an ornery teenage attitude. So implying that postpartum women have a mood disorder interferes with getting correct focus and treatment on the physical cause of the ailment. A mood disorder signifies an emotional disease. It is a physical disease that affects our thoughts and emotions. So what do you think about this idea that we have inaccurately named a physical disease after an emotional symptom? I would love to hear your thoughts. Maybe you'll be the person to identify this disease by its accurate name. I hope so. Words have power on our brains. Words influence us, affect our perceptions, and thus determine our actions. So let's stop dilly dallying and find the accurate name for this disease currently known as depression. What is its rumble stiltskin? Because we will never break the power it has over us by calling it Frank. This is Malia Warner. You've been listening to Power Principles, the podcast. Until next episode, my friends, have a great week.